At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Confession is a necessary habit to have in our walk with Christ. It's something that can be uncomfortable or bring up feelings of guilt and shame. Even though we may be hesitant to confess our sins, He reminds us in His Word how vital confession is to our relationship with Him. In Psalm 51, David comes in full surrender, bringing his sin, shame, and guilt to God, asking for a renewed spirit and a cleansed heart. Join us in a new series titled, Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal, where we'll learn why practicing confession is so important. You can imagine at 6.45 in the morning, that's typically when I'm on I-75 southbound, heading toward to work. I work down in Dearborn on the days that I go in. And I'm um, in the third lane. I-75 has four lanes. The left lane is for passing, right? You all know that it's not for driving, it's for passing. I just wish they would teach that in driver's ed. But anyway, I'm in the third lane, and I come up on a slowpoke. Now, let's just pretend the posted speed is 70 and the guy is going 65. Let's just pretend that for just a minute. And he's 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 going slow in the third lane. So I decide I'm going to Get into the passing lane. I turn my head. I check my blind spot. There's nobody in that lane. I turn my blinker on. I properly change lanes. <clears throat> Trying to pass a slowpoke. Before I know it, as I'm speeding up to get around him, all of a sudden, there's a guy behind me. He's right on my tail. He's flashing his lights at me. He's angry. I can see him. He's pumping his fist at me. Like, where did he come from? <laughs> like, he wasn't there a second ago. But he's there, and I'm thinking, okay, so I speed up a little more, thinking I can just get around the slowpoke and he'll leave me alone. But no, 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 just as soon as he's got enough space, he cuts the slowpoke off, passes me by, and then cuts me off, and I've got to hit the brakes hard to keep from hitting him. How many of you have ever experienced that? Oh, wow, uh, you all drive I-75 southbound at 640. Wow. What am I thinking right about then? Be nice, be nice, you're in church, be nice, be nice. That guy's a jerk. And what am I hoping for? Am I hoping for justice or for mercy? You're not sure. (laughs) I'll tell you what I want. I want justice. I want a police car to pull up behind him, pull him over him, give him a ticket. Because he's a jerk. He's scum of the earth. That's what I want. You guys are just too nice here at Romeo. Oh, (laughs) what if that story was flipped? What if I'm the guy or you're the guy that's cutting people off? You woke up late. You've got a meeting you're heading to. You're going to be late. You don't mean to be a jerk, but you're speeding. You're cutting people off. You're the nicest person in the world, but today the dog ate your phone. The alarm didn't go off. Whatever the excuse, you're late and you're cutting people off. The person who you cut off wants what? Justice or mercy. But when the police cop pulls you over, what do you want? I want mercy. Listen, sir, officer, it wasn't my fault. Yes, it was my fault, but I was late. You know, I have a reason. I'm not normally a jerk. Can you just give me some mercy? just, Just let me off this one time. Isn't it funny how when we feel that our rights are violated, stepped on, that we want justice, But when we're the offender, we want mercy. 
We started a series last week um, that we're going to continue today called Confessions, Erasing Shame and Experiencing Renewal. And we've been looking at the power that comes with confessing of our sins. David wrote Psalm 51. By the way, it's a great time to turn your devices or Bibles to Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51 as a confession of sin as, as he poured out his heart to the Lord. And we see that this psalm, and we're going to be in this psalm over the next few weeks, all the way up until um, Holy Week. And we're going to look at what David prayed and what David wrote as he confessed his sin to the Lord. And last week we set this story up and we explained that this came from 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. But perhaps you weren't here and, and maybe you forgot. It's been a week. So let me just quickly do a flyover of the story so that we're all on the same page. David... In 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, he's supposed to go out to war, but he doesn't. He sends his men on to war. He stays home. He's lounging in his palace. He's bored. He's alone. He wanders onto the rooftop of his palace, and lo and behold, he happens to see a beautiful woman on a nearby rooftop bathing. He finds out her name is Bathsheba. She's the wife of a man named Uriah, whom he knows because he's one of David's mighty men. He's off fighting a war for David. But David doesn't care. He's filled with lust. He takes her, commits adultery with her, finds out that she's pregnant with her, with his child. David goes into cover-up mode. David brings Uriah back from the battlefield, tries to get him to sleep with his wife, but he refuses because he's a noble man. But then that requires David to have him killed on the field of battle. And then David takes Bathsheba to be his wife, one of his wives. And David thinks he's covered it all up, that he's done a good job of making sure no one knows about his adultery and no one knows about his murder. And for a whole year, for a whole year, David lives with that sin in his heart. For a whole year, David is living with unconfessed sin. He's living without repentance. And God doesn't let him go. God sends the prophet Nathan to confront him. And Nathan comes to him with a story, a story about a rich man who takes advantage of a poor man. And it's a story that tugs at David's heart so much that David gets angry. He gets furious. And in his anger and fury, he issues a judgment against the rich man that that rich man should die. And that's a great place for Nathan to jab his finger in David's face and say, you're the man. You're that guy. You sinned. You killed Uriah. You're the one who committed covetousness and adultery and murder. You're that guy. And in front of that confrontation, David very simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. Those are just a few words. So simple, so short, but so profound. And I think it was as Nathan left the palace that very night that David pens the words of this psalm that we're going to study today. And this psalm is really an exposition as he expands on that very simple phrase, I have sinned against the Lord. Because there's so much packed into that little statement. And so David, here, as he pours out his heart, writes this psalm. And the heading of this psalm, if you were there in Psalm 51, there's a heading on this psalm. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in 
to Bathsheba. Kind of gives credence to the fact this happens right after the confrontation. But this confession that David now writes out, explaining that simple statement, is full of lament, full of weeping, full of regret. But you find that David, even after his sin, what's he hoping for? Is he hoping for justice or is he hoping for mercy? He's hoping for mercy. What do you and I hope for when we sin and come short of the glory of God? Are we hoping for justice or are we hoping for mercy? We're hoping for mercy. And that's exactly what God gives him. In fact, after his confession, Nathan looks at David and says to him, you won't die for your sins. God has passed over your sin. And Pastor Billy explained how that is a picture of Passover, so I won't go into that. You can go look at, listen to the tape if you, or a tape, gosh, I'm dating myself. You can go listen to the audio message if you missed it last week. But God gives David mercy. But how is that possible? Why can God give David mercy? He's done some tremendous things. He's destroyed the life of Uriah and Bathsheba. He's destroyed their marriage. He didn't take pity on them once. How is it that God can show David mercy? How is it that God can show you and me mercy? Friends, we find in this first two verses of Psalm 51 that God is the giver of mercy. God is the giver of mercy. And we can receive God's mercy in two ways from this passage. The first is we can receive God's mercy by appealing to the character of God. By appealing to the character of God. I'm in Psalm 51, verse number one. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David appeals to God and to his mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. You know, it's interesting all the things David doesn't appeal to as he's looking for God's mercy. He doesn't appeal to past righteousness. He doesn't say, hey, God, I'm so much better of a king than the last guy. Remember the last guy? You kicked him out. I'm so much better than him. Hey, remember all the things I did? Remember Goliath? Remember all the Psalms I've written? Like, God, I've done a lot of good things. No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't look at past righteousness. He doesn't look to make excuses for himself. He doesn't say, God, I, I'm, I mean, on a scale from one to 10, I'm a solid eight. Maybe if you grade on a curve, I'm a nine. I'm, I'm not as bad as some of these other kings. I mean, these kings do it all the time. I, I messed up once, just once. No, he, he doesn't do that either. He doesn't try to do other things. He doesn't try to bargain with God. God, I'll, I'll, if you give me a chance, if you get me out of this pickle, I'll be the best king you've ever had. I'll write twice as many songs for you for worship than I did before. I'll be the best king you've ever seen. Not like we've ever tried any of those excuses before either, right? But, God, but David doesn't try any of that. He has one plea and one hope, and that is the mercy of God. But he doesn't call on God's mercy alone. Notice, he says, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. That word steadfast love, you've heard it if you've been in church. It comes from the Hebrew word chesed. Can you all try to say that with me? But but wait, before you do, put your hand in front of your your face. I can see you, so just know that I, I know who's doing. Put your hand in front of your face. And I want you to spit at me or the person in front of you and say chesed. Oh, you got it. It starts right here. And now you know why, right? Okay. Chesed is a beautiful word, but hard to translate. Because chesed 
is so rich in meaning. Sometimes it's translated unfailing love. Sometimes it's translated loyal love. And so it's a rich word, but one person said this word combines the ideas of love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one word. It has to do with God's promise-keeping loyalty that is by interpersonal care. It's the word that God uses to describe himself and his character when he's dealing with people who are in relationship and in covenant with him. <clears throat> you see the word steadfast love or chesed used all throughout the Old Testament and you see that it's always used in combination with covenant. You see, back in Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham and entered into a covenant with him, said, I will bless you, I'll make you a great nation, I'll give you a land, and all that other stuff. And then you see God repeat that covenant over and over again, generation after generation. Then you get to the book of Exodus. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but stick with me. You get to the book of Exodus, and you find the children of Israel living in bondage, and God then miraculously delivers them out of bondage through the Red Sea, through the desert, to the base of Mount Sinai. And there God says, I make a new covenant with you. Here are my commandments. If you obey these commandments and you live according to them and you worship me and me alone, I will bless you. I'll feed you. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. And the people, after having been given that covenant, said, we get it. We understand. We agree. Everybody is in violent agreement that this was good for them. And they agree. And so Moses goes back to the top of Mount Sinai to finalize the covenant with God. But Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time. The people at the base of Mount Sinai, after 40 days and 40 nights, they start to get restless. They start to wonder what happened to Moses. You can't go without food and water for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses must be a goner. And so they decide to create what? A golden idol. And then they start worshiping it. Just 40 days ago, they said, we won't worship any other God but, but God. And here we got a golden idol and they're worshiping. God is up on the mountain going, these people are rebelling. I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Moses says, time out. Hold it. God, remember? Remember, Abraham? You made a promise. And then to their forefathers, you made a promise. You said you'd make them a great nation. Oh, by the way, the Egyptians, you rescued these people out of Egypt. What will the Egyptians say if you destroy them? God, you can't do that. You can't violate your word. And in the middle of interceding for the people to make sure God doesn't destroy the people, Moses makes a weird request. He says to God, God, show me your glory. Uh, Moses, maybe not the right time and place for that conversation. Maybe next week. Like today, you're trying to save the people. God, no, Moses says, nope, show me your glory. And God says to Moses, no one can see my face and live. So here's what I'll do. I'll show you my backside. You can see my afterglow. And so God puts Moses in the cleft of a rock, covers him with his hand, and God passes by. But something weird, something strange happens as God passes by. I just want to draw your attention to Exodus chapter 34, verse number 5. Here's what happens as God walks by Moses. <clears throat> the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, that's Moses, stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, chesed, and faithfulness, keeping uh, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Did you catch what happened right there? As God is walking by Moses, he is chanting. What is he chanting? His name. Back in Exodus chapter 4, God already told Moses his name. I am who I am. That's where we get Yahweh from. But here, Exodus chapter 34, God expands that name. And what's his name? The Lord, the Lord. Help me out, church. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. What's the first characteristic of God in that sentence? Mercy. Our God is a God of mercy. When he should have wiped Israel off the face of the earth for their idolatry, Moses says, you can't can't do that, God. You're a merciful God. You're a slow to anger kind of God. You're a steadfast love, chesed kind of God. You keep covenant with these people. You've made a promise that you have to keep. You can't violate your word. You can't violate your character. So don't destroy them. And guess what? God doesn't destroy them. God listening to Moses' plea to the character of God, knowing that he is a merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness kind of God, says, I won't destroy them. And that's exactly what David is appealing to you know I read these stories I don't know if this happens to you but you read these stories in the Old Testament and you've watched Israel fail and fail and fail and you get to a point where you're going God you got to kick these people on the side of the head like what's wrong with these people like 40 days ago they made a covenant just another week or two ago they went through the Red Sea just a couple of months ago they saw all of these things that you did like how can they forget how can they forget all the blessings and the power and the miracles and everything else They need a good smack upside their head. Don't tell me I'm the only one who ever thought that. And then I realize that's me. I forget God's goodness. I forget how faithful he's been. I forget all the blessings he's given me. And then I sin and I come short of his glory and I'm back doing the same thing Moses did. God, have mercy on me. And David does the same thing. David says, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve your love or your mercy. But God, I got nothing else. I got nothing in of myself. I throw myself at your mercy and I call upon you to be who you are. God, you're a merciful God. You're a God who has chesed, steadfast love for me. So, Lord, show that to me. Friends, when we sin and we come short of God's glory, when we blow it again, when we mess up again, when we've done it again, just know that it's not based on our character, on what we have done, that God shows his mercy. It's because who he is. Amen? How many of you are thankful that he is a merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love kind of God? Amen? Amen. We receive God's mercy by appealing to who God is, to his character. But the second way we receive God's mercy is by appealing to the cleansing power of God. In verse number two, David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You know, David here is piling up words upon words to describe his 
moral failure, his immorality. I don't know if you noticed, but he uses three words to describe all of it. And back in verse number one, he uses the word transgressions. You know, we use all of these words we're about to talk about in Christianese, but we don't usually define them. Transgressions is to go against or to rebel. It's a word that describes high-handed rebellion. It's where we know God's law and God's boundary, but we willfully choose to step over the line. You ever go to the grocery store and you ever park in the no parking spot? Oh yeah, none of you do that. This is other campuses, I know. Uh, Or me. And we rationalize our, to ourselves, I just got one thing to get. I just got one thing to get. I'll just be a moment. I won't be gone long. And so we park there and we rationalize it, even though there's a big sign that says no parking. That's willful rebellion. That's transgression. The second word that he uses in verse 2 is the word iniquity. It means um, to bend or to twist it refers to our nature, our character that's bent or twisted. It's not that I just do or say the wrong things. It's because there's something wrong inside of me that does or says the wrong thing. It, I can't help it. It's kind of who I am inside of me. That's iniquity. And then the third word is something we use all the time. It's sin. It means to miss the what? To miss the mark, to miss the goal. It's the picture of a person pulling back their bow, aiming against a target, and letting that arrow go only to find out you missed the target. But it's more than just missing the target. It's not just about where the arrow and the target are. It's about the fact that no matter how much we aim, no matter how much ability and strength we pour into that shot, we will consistently miss the target. It talks about the inability that we have in our own strength, in our own might, in our own ability to meet God's righteous standard that none of us can meet ever on our own. Three words that you've heard all through your life, three words David piles up one on top of the other to describe his moral failure. And then he goes on to use three other words, word pictures, that ask God to cleanse him of the filth, of the sin, of the transgression, of his iniquity. In verse number one, he says, blot out my transgressions. We don't use the word blot today, but it means to erase, to remove to wipe out. If he were writing it today, he'd say, God, use the undo button. Use the delete button. Delete what you wrote in your book. By the way, just so you know, there's a book in heaven called the Book of Remembrance. Everything we do, including our sin, is written in God's Book of Remembrance. What David is saying is, God, go back to your book and write where you wrote, David committed murder and adultery, blot it out. Remove it, erase it, delete it. Don't remember my sin anymore. Blot it out. Now, I just want to make sure you understand. When the Bible says that God doesn't remember our sins anymore, it's not that he's forgetful. And it's not that he has a senior moment. Okay? When God says that he doesn't remember our sin anymore, it means that he no longer remembers our sins against us. That when God removes our sin, when God erases our sin, he's dropping it into the deepest ocean and he will never dredge it up again, ever. How many of you are thankful that he never brings it back up again? 
Amen. He remembers our sins no more. He blots them out. The second word pictured in verse number two, David says, God, wash me thoroughly. Wash me thoroughly. The word wash there has the meaning of cleaning something by beating or kneading it. You know, washing machines weren't invented until the 1800s. But those were the manual ones, so that they don't count. The electric, first electric washing machine was created in 1907. That was the first time you could throw clothes into a machine, add a little soap, turn the machine on, and walk away. Thank God for washing machines. Amen? <clears throat> Before washing machines, what did you do? You took the pile of clothes, you went to the local water source, pond, river, lake, whatever, and you soaked it. And after you were done soaking it, you took the clothes, and you beat it against a rock over and over again. Or if you're in the south, you had a washboard, and you scrubbed the clothes. And what were you trying to do? You're trying to get the dirt, the filth, out of those clothes. What David is saying when he says, wash me thoroughly, God, take my heart and beat me on the rock of your mercy and do it again and do it again and do it again until there's nothing impure, nothing filthy, nothing dirty left in me. Wash me thoroughly. That's all. Powerful word picture. The third and last picture he uses in verse 2 is cleanse me. Cleanse me. It's typically used of ceremonial washing or cleansing. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of reasons why somebody could be unclean. And when you were unclean, you couldn't have community. You couldn't worship God. In fact, for example, if you contracted leprosy, you were kicked out of the town. You were kicked out of the camp. You couldn't have community with your family, your friends, your neighbors, whatever. You couldn't come to the temple. You couldn't worship God. You were ostracized. And if somehow that leprosy was healed, then you'd have to go through this cleansing ritual. It required a bird and a bowl and hyssop and water. And you had to go through this ritual of cleansing that you had to go through and after which you were invited back into community, back to the temple, back to the worship of God. And that's what David is saying. David is saying, God, there's the unclean stuff in me. It separates me from you. It separates me from community. It separates me from your love. So Lord, cleanse me. Remove the filth from me. Remove the impurity from me. Let me come back to community. Let me come back to your temple. Let me come back to worship you. Powerful word pictures of what God, David is asking God to do in his life to cleanse the filth that he has stored up in his heart. I don't know if this ever happens to you, <clears throat> but whenever I go out to eat, I somehow have this habit of sharing the plate of food with my shirt. Has that ever happened to any of you? You're eating. Yep, there's a couple of you. There, you're eating, and all of a sudden, it dribbles on your shirt, or it drips. Some, I've tried to be as careful as I can, but more times than not, I come home with a stain. You know what I'm talking about? I have lost so... No, but somebody said no. <laughs> you're special. But I'm talking about me. I can't tell you how many shirts I've lost because I didn't deal with it quick enough. And so nowadays, I travel around with this thing. Do you know what this is? <laughs> oh, yeah, I learned, I learned. Yeah, this is a Tide pen. If I don't have one, my wife has one in her purse, because she knows how I like to share food with my shirt. <clears throat> as soon as my wife says, you did it again, I pull this out, and I apply it. Because when I apply a Tide pen to my stain, it is significantly increases the percentage chance that the washing machine, thank God for that, 
can get that stain out. How many of you walk around with a Tide pen? Yeah, well, some of you do, okay. Men, <clears throat> FYI, <laughs> could save a lot of shirts this way. <clears throat> you know, sin leaves a stain. It leaves a stain on our soul. It scars us. But this thing can't take it out. Bleach can't take it out. There's no cleaner or detergent on the face of the planet that can take out the stain that's caused by sin in our lives. Friends, the only thing that can take the stain out is when we come to God and we confess our sins, we throw ourselves on his mercy, on his character, and we say, wash me, cleanse me, and the only thing powerful enough to cleanse us is the precious blood of Jesus Christ, amen? In fact, Jesus, God says to Israel in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18, God says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God takes our stain, God takes our sin, God takes those scars, and he washes us, he cleanses us, he makes us white as snow. To God be the glory for the great things he has done. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. But first, it requires confession. The apostle John in 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to what? cleanse us. Did you see that word? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's in the cleansing business, but we have to confess. We have to come clean. We have to become right with God. Friends, David deserved death. That was the right judicial requirement of the law. He deserved to die. Israel deserved to die. You and I I'm sorry to say this to you. We deserve to die. Why? Because we have sinned. We have transgressed the holy and righteous standard of God. But God has shown you and me and David and Israel mercy. How? Because he withheld mercy from his son. When Jesus hung on the cross, hanging on three nails, God withheld mercy from him. He withheld mercy from him so that Jesus who was sinless, spotless, perfect, could become sin for you and for me, for David and Israel and all of the world. That this Jesus, the Son of God, this Lamb of God, could receive the punishment and could bear the full weight of the justice of an almighty God. You see, you and I don't carry our justice. Jesus did. Jesus served the penalty for our sin. He died in your place and in mine. He died so you and I don't have to. Thank God that he shed his blood so that those of us who turn to him can have our sins forgiven and we can be added into his family. Amen? <clears throat> Friends, Jesus didn't stay dead, did he? Three days later, he rose from the dead, claiming victory over sin and death, and now he stands with arms wide open, inviting all of us to come. All of us to come to share in his victory, in the forgiveness of sins, to be part of a, a new family. I want to close with the words of a song that many of you are familiar with. It's 
titled His Mercy is More. I just want to read the first verse of that song. And it says, What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Aren't you glad you serve a God whose mercy is more? I recognize that there may be some of you sitting here today who've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We're so glad you're here. You're not here by accident. You're here to hear the voice of God calling you by name. And if you feel the tug in your heart that this Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, won't you listen? Oh, I know you have a whole day planned out already. But friends, that's just today. You have a whole eternity to think about. Won't you take a few moments to think about where will you spend eternity when you leave this world? Jesus stands by you, welcoming you. But it starts by saying, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins and I turn away from them. Would you forgive me? And won't you come into my life and won't you make me your child, be the Lord and the Savior of my life? And if you pray that prayer, if you confess in your heart and receive Jesus, he'll forgive you of your sins. He'll wash you clean, white as snow. He'll add you into his family. He'll make you his own. If you want to know how to do that, if you have questions, there will be people at the end of the service in the front who would love to answer any of your questions or introduce Jesus to you. They'd love to do that. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we go through life with unconfessed sin in our lives. David did it for a year. Perhaps it's only been a week for you, maybe a month. Maybe it's been a year. Maybe it's been more. But if we are holding unconfessed sin in our lives, it separates us from community. It separates from God's love. And God is reminding us that there's mercy available for you. Won't you come clean with God today? Won't you confess that sin that you've been holding on to? And won't you make it right? Receive the cleansing that's available in him. And we don't receive that cleansing because of how good we are, but because how wonderful he is. Amen? Our sins, they may be many. His mercy is more. Father, I'm so thankful for your mercy. That you're a merciful God, a gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the kind of God you are. And you don't deal with us according to our sin. No, you, you put that on Jesus. Jesus paid it all. Jesus took it all. Jesus died for all. Every one of us, including David and Israel, you died for all. So, Father, there may be someone here today who doesn't know you. May today be the day that you rescue them out of the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of light. Continue to convict them of their sin and convince them of the truth of who you are. And may today be the day that they make a decision to receive you as Lord and Savior. But for my brothers and sisters, thank you for the reminder that even David can fall, so can we. We can harbor sin in our lives. But thanks be to God that your mercy is more, that your grace is more, that you love us in spite of our sin and in spite of our shortcomings. You love us. So Lord, when you continue to work in our lives, continue to mold us and shape us and bring us continually to the foot of the cross 
where we can yield our lives to you so that you might be glorified in and through us for the glory of your name. Thank you for this time together. May your blessing rest upon each one of us. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.